tonight. We think of uh, Miss um, uh, uh, Jean Whitener and uh, Miss Laverne Payne, um, Brother Norm and Miss Evelyn. They are not able to get out and about right now. <coughs> we think of those that have recently lost very dear loved ones of theirs. We think of Miss June's family and Brother Ron Beckett's family. And, uh, Lord, that you'll continue to bless their bless in Miss Belinda's heart and life and give comfort in the days ahead. We pray that you would also bless in uh, Brother Everett Scheffler's family and Miss uh, uh, Miss Florence as she uh, deals with things in the future and, and looking towards the future that you give great comfort and guidance there. And then, Father, may we uh, be able to bring honor and glory to you tonight. Help us not to do anything that would cause a reproach or a shame uh, to your name this evening through what we teach or preach here or through our actions, but that we would lift you up and be able to honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you will take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We are now on the seventh of the seven letters to the seven churches or pastors of the seven churches, and that will be the church of Laodicea. Uh, we've spent some time going through some of these. Some churches took a couple of weeks to, excuse me, to deal with. And there's, uh, I don't think that we study prophecy just for the sake of the knowledge of it, but that we learn uh, some things that are practical in this day that we live, things that will cause us to um, move to action and to do things that uh, either wake us out of our sleep or uh, guide us into the importance and the urgency of serving the Lord now while we have a chance. Uh, there are always things to be learned. And in these seven letters to these seven churches, uh, we have found a, a, a multitude of truths and things that we could glean and learn from them and hopefully put into place and into practice, not only in our church, but in our own personal lives. And um, tonight is one of those nights, again, that I think we can find some wonderful things that we can learn uh, from the church at Laodicea. <coughs> the... Uh, the uh, letter begins in chapter 3, in verse number 14. If you'll follow along with me, we'll read through that letter. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. <clears throat> so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes uh, with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." <clears throat> as Christ is as Christ has done in so many of these uh, letters, in each of these letters, he begins it with a, a, a description of himself to the church, 
his position, his attributes. And oftentimes, it's to help the church uh, be able to see him the way that they need to be able to see him in order to correct the things that he's going to point out to them. He starts off by saying (coughs) that he is the amen. I I like that. The word amen is actually a Greek word, and we have transliterated it into the English language. We've not translated it, but we brought it across letter by letter and made the word an English word. Um, But it was a Greek word uh, to begin with. And when we say amen, we are expressing our agreement with, uh, in in the uh, time of the writings of this, oftentimes there was a saying, uh, let it be so, or or I am in agreement, or yes, this is right. And, and amen was the word that was used to express those things. And what, what God is getting ready to teach these folks uh, is that He is the one that is the faithful and true witness. He's not departed from the truth. And He is the witness of that truth. He's the one that gives forth the truth. That He was the beginning of the creation of God and the faithful Creator, and He he establishes His position. Uh, He establishes as being the one that when He says it, let it be so. He establishes the one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful to the truth. He is the witness of the truth. He also establishes the fact that He is the Creator, and so He has every right to make judgment upon this particular church. And uh, you're going to see here in a few moments that He does issue a word of warning of judgment uh, to them, and he, he establishes himself, I believe, very specifically to the members of this church and the pastor of this church so that they don't ever say, well, who does he think he is telling us these things? But there is a, there's an interesting thing that takes place in this letter that does not take place in any of the other letters, and that is that they saw themselves one way, and God saw them a completely different way, didn't they? In fact, so much so that God said uh, that they needed to anoint their eyes with eye salve so that they could see clearly, so they could see the way that He saw them. And the, so here's the way the church at Laodicea saw themselves. The Bible refers to it here in verse number 17. They thought, first of all, we're rich. We're rich. I don't know that they uh, are necessarily speaking here solely of material things, but I think even maybe they were thinking they were rich spiritually, that they, they uh, were well off, okay, uh, the idea that they were rich. And then it says here, and increased with goods. I believe that deals primarily with material things. And have need of nothing. And these are the three main things that they looked at when they examined themselves and said, uh, this is how we see ourselves. Um, it's interesting to note, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, it's interesting to note that there are times throughout history we find churches that are this way, or at least sometimes Christians that are this way. They uh, consider themselves to be in need of nothing, and when we become self-sufficient, we lose our dependency upon God. One of the most dangerous places, I think, a Christian can ever find himself is when he has no need for God. He's sufficient. He's able to to deal with everything. They have need of nothing. Now, God saw them completely different. Let's look at how God sees them. He tells them in verse number 17, 
that they knew not, and he says this, and knowest not that thou art wretched. Boy, what a statement. I mean, here's a church that thinks they are God's gift to churches and God's gift to this world. And God looked at them and said, you're wretched. By the way, the truth of the matter is every single one of us are sinners. We're saved by the grace of God, and I thank Him for that. But the truth is we are very wretched in our nature. He says you're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. I mean, this is the way God saw them. And I think there's a tremendous lesson to be learned in here. There's a number of lessons to be learned from this particular church. Uh, and one of the lessons is be careful how we, how we view ourselves and what we think of ourselves. Uh, Paul spoke of this very clearly. He said that we need to be careful that we don't think uh, more highly of ourselves than we ought. If we begin to look at ourselves with any kind of, uh, I, I hate to use this word because it's, it really doesn't do this statement justice, but if we begin to look at ourselves with any kind of prideful um, commendation, <laughs> you know, patting ourselves on the back, uh, boy, look at me. I am not what that Christian is. And we uh, oftentimes uh, try to take pride in our humility of this. And I've heard people sometimes get up and give a prayer request. And uh, their prayer request was praying for somebody who wasn't what they were. And you knew by their doing that they were trying to point out that, hey, I'm far better than this one. Jesus in His earthly ministry spoke to His disciples about uh, uh, such a situation where uh, a sinner came in and uh, knelt at the altar and, and began to beat upon his breast and began to pray for mercy. And yet there was one that was of a religious uh, nature and a very wealthy and astute man who was standing beside him and said, I'm thankful I'm not as this man. And Jesus looked at him and he taught them a lesson that you need to be careful that you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. This church thought that they were doing well. Um, Paul was so cautious of this. He said, I want to be careful lest in preaching of the gospel and thinking highly of myself uh, that I would become a castaway myself or that I would be, become some kind of a stumbling block. And Paul was very careful to keep uh, his pride in check. And, 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 you know, it's interesting to me that God helped Paul with that, you know. Uh, he gave them, the Bible says, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And two different times, Jesus, or God told Paul, said, I've done this for a specific reason. He told him what the reason was. He said, lest thou be exalted above measure. He says it two different times to Paul. Lest thou be exalted above measure. And then he told Paul, he said, listen, my grace will be sufficient for you. This is here to keep you from being exalted above measure. We're living in a day where there is a tendency among the people of God and the churches of God to think more highly of themselves than they are. We were sharing a little bit last night in uh, the, the college time, and I, since that talk last night, I've actually pondered throughout the day some of the, the thoughts along that line. And it's, it's amazing to me how we become comfortable. We are accustomed to living a certain way. And the question was brought up, why don't we see those kinds of movings of God in miraculous uh, revival works that we saw back during the First and Second Great Awakenings? And uh, 
the answer to that, I believe, is, is multifold. But one of the things we discussed last night is uh, we become too consumed with the affairs of this world. Uh, we become too comfortable. We're, we're not willing to sacrifice and to pay the price in prayer, in humbleness of spirit, in personal, internal purging of our sin and repentance of our sins so that we do not hinder the Spirit of God working. We live in such a day that uh, we're not willing to do those things. We are comfortable having a nice church to go to and the fellowship of the people, and we rejoice and we come and we sing songs and we enjoy that, and we hear the preaching and we may endure that sometimes <laughs> because of who the preacher is. But we get comfortable, don't we? And we feel like we're really the ones that are on fire for the Lord. We look at other denominations, we look at other churches, and we think, boy, they're not preaching the Word of God. And here's our church. Well, we're staying faithful to the King James Bible. We're staying faithful to preaching the Word of God. And yet the truth is we're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. We must not ever get to the place where we think ourselves to be something far more than we really are. This church at Laodicea was uh, a very materialistic church, and they were. The Bible refers to them as being lukewarm. I'll, I'll share with you what I think. There's other people that have mentioned other things regarding this. But why is it that God says, "I would that thou wert cold or hot"? God would rather somebody be cold than at least to be lukewarm. I mean, at least be lukewarm, right? But I think there's a reason for that, and I, I've heard some other folks mentioned some other ideas, and I'm not saying that those are wrong at all. I think quite a few of these are, are accurate reasons. But one of the things I look at is somebody who's cold for the things of the Lord does not, does not put forth a testimony and claim to be a Christian in front of the world. And so when they live like the world, it's not a detriment to the cause of Christ because nobody really knows they're a Christian anyway. But a lukewarm person is somebody who would go to church on Sundays and claim to be a Christian even at work and yet live like the world, that person causes and brings a reproach to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have somebody that's on fire for the Lord. Not only does he claim to be a Christian, but in every way he can, and with great fervency and with great diligence, he tries and strives to live a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. He may not always succeed at it, but his heart is to do those things that are right. And when he does fail and when he does sin, it's something that, that breaks his heart and is, it mortifies him and he... Uh, is not long before he's on his knees and asking God uh, to restore that fellowship again and to forgive him of um, uh, the failure. And so I think that one of the great reasons that is spoken of here is that God would rather somebody either uh, not say they're a Christian at all or not even do that than to do that and live like the world. If you're going to live like the world, don't, don't cause a reproach to Christ on, the way, on your way to do it. And uh, yet he uh, encourages them uh, in some areas. Uh, to be on fire for him. When we start looking at the challenge, he leaves them here in just a moment. You're going to see that. But they were lukewarm. Uh, he, uh, he refers to them um, as a church that seems to be a very materialistic church. And uh, I, I look around at a lot of the churches we have today, and I think, boy, we've got a lot like this, don't we? Uh, very affluent churches. Lots of money. Um, years ago, when I was in Florida, I pastored a church, and uh, one year uh, Lowe's had a uh, uh, 
a sale on, a, on an airplane. It was a Christmas time, one of those inflatable things that you put in your yard. And it was an airplane, and there was a guy in the pilot seat that had a big white beard and a red hat. Some people said, well, Pastor, you got Santa Claus in your front yard. I said, no, no, that's Pontius the pilot on the flight to Egypt when Jesus was born. They didn't buy that, but that's what I told them. But anyway, we bought that and put it in our yard. And uh, somebody uh, got word of that, and they, they started spreading it around town that I had used church funds to buy an airplane. And it went all over the place, you know. Um, and the truth is, we've got churches all over. I look at some of these folks like Jesse DePlantis and, and uh, some of the uh, Creflo Dollar and some of these guys that are in this Word of Faith movement that's out here today. And they've got these multi-million dollar jets and these mansions that they live in. They were very, very lucrative. And this, is, I believe, is the kind of church that the church at Laodicea was. They were very materialistic and uh, looked at some of these things. So God counsels them. Let's look at verse number 18, and let's see what his, what his instruction to the church is, all right? If you find yourself in this position, here's God's counsel of him. <clears throat> he says, Buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. The Bible tells us that our works are going to be judged for what sort they are. Not just the works themselves, but even the motivation of those works are going to be tried one of these days. And uh, some people, when their works are tried, uh, will have uh, the results of that life come out as... Uh, uh, gold and silver and precious stone. But it says some men's works will burn like wood and hay and stubble. And what he's telling the church at Laodicea is quit being materialistic about things. Quit having the wrong motivation about things. And let's get your heart back to the Lord. Let's start serving Him and serving Him out of a spirit of humility. And if you're going to try to bear some fruit, if you're going to try to produce some things, then let it be gold that can be tried in the fire. He talks about the fact that they needed to, to uh, get the white raiment. And this is in reference to purity. The idea of living a life that is without world spots. Uh, years ago, I shared a story a number of years ago. A mine owner went to look at one of his mines, and he brought his daughter with him, and she had worn a, a brand new dress that was white and, and real pretty, not a spot on it. And when her dad went down to inspect the mine, she wanted to go with him, and she begged and pleaded. And the mine boss said, uh, young lady, you really shouldn't go down there because you've got a white dress on. And she got mad at him, and she chewed him up one side and down the other. She said, you cannot stop me from going down into this mine with the white dress. And he looked back at her, and he said, no, ma'am, I can't, but I can guarantee you if you go into that mine with the white dress, you will not come out with the white dress. What he was saying is that when you're around certain things and you put yourself into those situations where there is known corruption, the spots will begin to show up. And we're living in a world where Christians go headlong into the known corruption of this world, and then they think, well, I can get by without having world spots. God tells this church, He says, I want you to buy a white raiment from me, that thou mayest be clothed in the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And He says, anoint thine eyes with eyes said that thou mayest see. I believe this is probably one of the, the most condemning and probably the root reason why the church at Laodicea was the way it was. They just couldn't see correctly. They couldn't see plainly. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus uh, was healing the blind man along the roadside and he spat into the 
uh, dirt and he made a paste and put it upon his eyes. And uh, when he wiped it away, he asked the man, how do you see? And he said, uh, I see men as trees walking about. And Jesus had to, to do an, uh, another uh, process, not because he didn't heal him well enough the first time. That wasn't the point. I think Jesus was teaching a lesson there that sometimes we can have blurred vision and think that we're fully okay. And uh, Jesus uh, touched him again, had him go and wash his eyes, and then he was made completely whole. And I've shared with you, when I was a kid, I didn't know that I couldn't see. I'd grown up never really being able to see a lot of things. And when I got to be in sixth grade, my dad finally took me down, got me some glasses, and I thought I was the bionic man. I could see things I'd never seen before. I could see individual blades of grass. I didn't know you could see that unless you got down in it and rolled in it. I could see individual leaves on a tree. I, I never knew you could do that uh, from a distance. And uh, I remember the day that the glasses came on and the world, there was a wonder there. I, I was overjoyed. I was thrilled. I couldn't believe. I was amazed at what I saw. This church was blind. And the interesting thing here is they didn't know it. God tells them, He says, listen, you need to anoint your eyes with eyes set up that thou mayest see. In other words, He's saying you need to have a desire to see things the way that I see them. I think He was telling them they needed to get into God's Word and understand God's heart on issues. I believe He was saying you need to apply some things to your spiritual eyes so you can fully understand and see these things. Then He gives them a word of warning. He says, as many as I love... I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know the amazing thing? I've never heard anybody preach on this before about the church of Laodicea. God loved them. Because He wasn't willing to let them continue in what they were doing without chastening. And He tells them from the very beginning, He says, Whom I love, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase them. And then He gives them this challenge, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Don't let it come to that. And what Jesus was telling them is, I love you. And if you continue down this road, I will bring chastening. I will, I will begin to rebuke you in these things. He speaks there, again, to the church. We often use this verse as a soul winning verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will suck with him and he with me. This is not a salvation verse. This is a verse of fellowship. They had broken fellowship with God because of their worldliness. And uh, God was outside asking to come in and to have that time of fellowship. This church didn't even know they were blind. They didn't even know that there was no fellowship with God. We did a study a, a number of months back on the Word of Faith movement of churches that are out there today. And there are several doctrines that are so heretical and so against Scripture, but so much in line with what this church in Laodicea was doing. They believed that they... Uh, had the power, uh, the, the, the churches today in this Word of Faith movement, they believe that they have the power to command God and that God is powerless without them allowing Him to work. That is the most blasphemous thing I think I've ever heard in my life, and yet they're preaching it from the pulpits. They're elevating men to the level of God and elevating God to the level of men. And the, and the fellowship is not there. You look at these churches, and while they have large crowds... And they have a lot of money coming in and a lot of things that from a worldly perspective we would look at and say they are being successful in ministry. The truth is God is nowhere to be found in them. They teach about a God that, that is not the God of the Bible. They teach about a Jesus and a Savior, a Christ, who is not the Christ of the Bible. 
They're teaching an antichrist, if you will. They're teaching a, about a God that does not exist in our Scriptures. And yet they're doing it all in the name of the Lord. They're saying, we are this. This is what we are. We're this church. And they, they've made it appear to the world that they are something when they really are nothing. And God, I believe, stands outside the door and He knocks. If any of these churches would ever get their eyes off of the things they're doing and put them back on the Lord, they could perhaps have fellowship with Him. Oh, that we would learn from these things. And then he ends this letter, as he does so often with each of these churches, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. And again, the phrase, to him that overcometh, is in reference to those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. So he's not speaking here of a works of salvation. He's not speaking here of people that have to persevere and endure uh, in order to uh, reap these benefits. These are benefits given to those that uh, John writes earlier in one of his epistles, other than this book in Revelation that he writes. He speaks of the fact that those that are saved and have trusted Christ are those that have overcome the world. And uh, so we understand this phrase, he that overcometh, to be those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. Now, uh, well, that gets us through the seven churches. Uh, once again, he ends with, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And I'm going to share, uh, begin tonight sharing, we've got about ten minutes here, I'm going to get as far as I can here. I'm going to begin sharing a couple of things just by way of wrapping up the seven church study before we get into uh, the prophecies of uh, the book of Revelation. But if you will, take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 13. Matthew chapter number 13. Throughout the Bible, and I'm going to teach some things or share some things with you that I look at, and I think these are certainly there. Um, Throughout the Bible, as we look at Old Testament especially, we've been doing a Bible survey on Sunday mornings and going through each book uh, of the Bible in a high-level view, uh, you find that in the Old Testament oftentimes there are things that are done that actually literally happen to real-life people in real-life places at that period of time in history. And yet, they picture things that were yet to come. We find that over and over again. God gives... Uh, the, the, one, one of the easy ones to look at and to understand is when the children of Israel were getting ready to leave um, Egypt, God uh, gave them the Passover and the process of the Passover. It was a literal event that needed to take place with a literal group of people at a literal time in history, and it was given to picture things that were yet to happen. The Passover lamb being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we find oftentimes as we're studying through these books that Christ is pictured by the stories that are given and the indications of things that are given. And so we find interwoven throughout Scripture uh, very literal things that take place, but also have a, a picturing and a secondary meaning of things that are yet to come. I personally believe that these seven letters to seven churches are very much like this as well. They were seven letters written to seven distinct churches who had these issues and these problems in them. If you'll take a moment to look with me in chapter, Matthew chapter number 13, you're going to find that there are um, a number of parables here, seven to be exact, 
And it's interesting that each of these parables teaches about uh, things that perhaps are in the Christian life in that day, but also things that are yet to come regarding the kingdom of heaven. And you'll find that if you will take each of these seven parables found in chapter number 13, they very closely align in their teaching with the seven churches in Revelation and the issues that each of those churches were having. You can draw almost an exact parallel. For instance, the the first one that we find in Matthew chapter number 13 is the parable of the sower. The very first church uh, was the church at Ephesus. They were a very evangelistic church. They uh, had uh, left their first love, and God told them to return to their first works, this um, uh, evangelistic zeal uh, of the apostles during this period of time um, uh, was given in the church at Ephesus. And so we find here uh, this evangelistic uh, parable in the first part of it. And uh, then as we go down, we find uh, the parable uh, of the wheat and the tares uh, in verse number 24, if you'll look there. Verse number 24, And another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field, And it talks about the wheat and the tares. And uh, we find that yet in the church at Smyrna, the first indication that some uh, uh, corruption was trying to infiltrate their doctrine, and the church at Smyrna, the second church, uh, wouldn't hear of it. They were were staunch and holding fast to uh, purity of doctrine and began to have uh, persecution. They began to have... Um, uh, martyrs. Some of the first martyrs were found uh, in the church in Smyrna. And then we go down to verse number 31 and you'll see here the parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed. And uh, that was only a couple verses. Let's read that one. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed it in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown... It is the greatest among herbs, becometh the tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And we find the church of Pergamos. The church of Pergamos was a very affluent church, a very large church. It was growing, and they were marked by compromise. They began to allow things to creep in, uh, but they were a thriving, growing type of a church in a, in a very uh, uh, compromising time period. And then you have uh, the parable here of uh, the leaven in verse number 33, the parable of the leaven, which uh, parallels often with the characteristics that are found in the church of Thyatira. Under the king, uh, verse number 33, the parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. And of course, leaven here, speaking of uh, sin and, and the idea of uh, the sinful condition. And during this time, we find uh, idolatry uh, and uh, adultery creeping in. If you remember, the church at Thyatira uh, had a uh, lady in the church. They referred to her as Jezebel and uh, brought uh, immorality into the church and brought idolatry into the church. Why? Because that leaven that wasn't dealt with in the, in the church at Pergamos was infiltrating and, and, and growing through and filling the whole lump. Uh, then we have uh, verse number 36, the parable of the tares. That is, uh, it's, I'm sorry, the parable of the hidden treasure uh, in verse number 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. And uh, Sardis, if you'll remember, uh, they were almost dead. Remember that? 
there was just a small group, a small remnant, a hidden treasure there uh, that was it needed to be sought after. It needed to be nurtured, lest lest they were to die. They were almost. The Bible refers to them. If you remember that, as we studied, they were almost dead. But there were a few that had kept themselves unspotted. Just that hidden glimmer jewel, that hidden treasure inside that church. And then we find uh, the pearl of great price in verse number 45. The parable of the pearl of great price. And uh, in the pearl of great price, uh, we see that there was one of great value who sold all that he had and bought this uh, pearl. And the idea of uh, sacrifice and gaining that which is precious. And here we have the Church of Philadelphia, who is a very evangelistic church, and was willing to sacrifice that the truth of God could be propagated. And then we have the parable uh, of the net. And this is, uh, again, very much indicative of the things in the church at Laodicea. In verse number 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And again, we see very much some of the characteristics of what God was dealing with in the church of Laodicea in this parable. Uh, Now, if you said, Pastor, that's a stretch to try to make all those line up. The truth is they're very close parallels. I don't know that God intentionally... Uh, put these in here and then gave us indication that they are parallel to it. But God is so perfect in writing His book that it just helps to bring the coherency of Scripture together. The fact that all of these things (coughs) support and teach one another. I'm going to go a little bit further out and mention a couple of other things regarding the seven letters to the seven churches And this is something that, once again, I personally believe there is validity to. I don't know that you can find in Scripture (coughs) where it tells us that this is what is being done in the seven letters to the seven churches. But I would ask you to consider this. God comes to John, and we call it the book of Revelation. The idea is to tell him the things which are yet to come, the things which have been, which are, and which are to come yet. And then he writes seven letters to seven churches. And I personally have the idea that those, those seven churches were specifically picked by God to help us to see that there would be times during the time of the churches throughout the history of the time of the apostles till the present day that would parallel the characteristics of these church, churches. I, I'll, I'll share with you some of what historically the church has churches have gone through have gone through and how clearly they seem to line up with each of these things now again I'm not going to go out here and be dogmatic about it and say well if you don't believe this then you don't believe the Bible because it does not tell us that these represent historical periods of future prophecy of things that will happen in the church Um, but yet we do look back on history and we say boy isn't it interesting that each era of time that seems to be so distinctively shown in history, so closely parallel these churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. For instance, from A.D. 100 to about A.D. 300, we have 
for the most part, purity of doctrine. There was some people that were starting to depart. Uh, there were a few people out there. Even Paul was starting to deal with uh, uh, false teachers and false apostles, warning against them and trying to be careful of them. But, the, but there was a desire and that, that love for the Lord. But after that 300-year period, that love began to wane. We started seeing the zeal of some of those early churches begin to wane. And uh, then we have an overlap where uh, there was a persecution period uh, that started somewhere around 100 A.D. and went till about the middle of the 300s A.D. And uh, great persecution coming on the scene. We start seeing um, the uh, Catholic Church gaining in prominence and in world power and beginning to take more and more power from the state and from the government. Not quite a full marriage of it yet, but they begin to become very, very strong and influential. They begin to come up with core doctrine that is uh, marred and is impure doctrine and incorrect doctrine. And this is there was not only persecution from uh, the governmental officials during this time, but there was the beginning of religious persecution from uh, those that were part of that uh, that original uh, group of folks that met during like the Council of Nicaea and those types of things that brought together uh, in full power and in unity uh, the Roman Catholic Church. From about the middle of the 300s A.D. to about 590 A.D., uh, we see a lot of compromise creeping into churches. Um, a lot of things that were uh, saying, well, let's, let's agree on the things that we can agree on. There were numerous councils where they... The, the core group of folks that were now becoming more and more known as the Catholic Church uh, and more and more in power, they would start these councils and they'd say, okay, all you others that are out there, come in and I'll tell you what we'll do. We have these areas we disagree in. Let's all meet together and <coughs> discuss these things <coughs> and come to a mutual agreement of things we can agree on. And in doing so, they brought people in that had been strong in their doctrine and caused them to compromise their stand on pure doctrine in order to be in fellowship and in agreement with other religious groups. This took place from the period of about uh, the middle of the 300s to about uh, almost 680, about 590 A.D. And again, this is what we see in the church at Pergamos that God is dealing with. The issue of compromise, the world coming into the church. Um, from about 590 to about the 1500s, the Catholic Church now is in full power. They've gained so much support from these fringe uh, people that were trying to hold to pure doctrine. And there was a very small, small remnant of folks during this period of time that continued to hold to pure doctrine. They were known by several names down through the years, the Waldenses, the Albigensians, um, a number of others that were uh, the Anabaptists and some of these other groups that were out there that would still hold to the purity of doctrine and never did join themselves to the Catholic uh, Church. Uh, but during this time, we see something that takes place uh, called the Dark Ages, if you remember that. And what the Catholic Church did in order to keep power that they had worked so hard to get and uh, to have over the uh, government uh, people is they began to tell uh, the common folks that they could not understand the Scriptures. Only the priests could. And so they began, they wouldn't even print the word of God that they had in the common man's language. They kept it in Latin uh, for the most part, and you had to be wealthy and well-educated to even get a training 
to understand Latin in that day. And the Dark Ages came on. And the Inquisition and uh, absolute uh, unbelievable persecution uh, where Jesuit priests that were the enforcing act of the Church of Rome would come into cities and literally lay waste to entire cities because they would not come into line with the religious doctrine of the Catholic Church. One of the biggest doctrines that they began to kill, and literally, if you'll take time to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll hear of the millions of people through the history that were killed for the cause of Christ and for not recanting. The biggest doctrinal issue uh, that seems to be the major one throughout history, there were some others that people were put to death for, but the major one was the issue of baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. And those both go hand in hand. And uh, that's a, those are big words, but basically what it means is that they believed that you had to be baptized in order to be saved. And if that was true, once they came to that doctrine, then they said, okay, but what if a baby dies? And they haven't been able to, of their own accord, make their choice to be baptized. So then the church said, well, then you need to start bringing your infants and we're going to baptize babies before they have a choice or they have a knowledge because baptism is going to get them saved. And that way if they die at a young age and during the dark ages, uh, during the time where disease was rampant and the life expectancy was so short, uh, the church came out and made a law. And since they were the power of the government at that time, they enforced that law with penalty of death. And if you refused to follow that doctrine, they would put you to death for it. These little sects of churches that were trying to hold true to the pure doctrine and they would meet in clandestine meetings and they would share what little scriptures that they could have and scraps of scripture that they could keep together um, and, and try to study in their own languages uh, would be caught and burned at the stake. And I'm talking not just men. We're talking about men, women, and children who down through those time periods from about the 600s to about the middle of the 1500s uh, were mercilessly tortured and martyred for the cause of Christ simply to hold to pure doctrine. That was their motive. They wanted to be right with God rather than want right with man. And they were willing literally to go to the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the stake and burn at the stake or to go to the rack and be pulled to pieces or to be sewn up in animal skins and eaten by wild beasts than to recant and say, I'm not going to follow that doc, or uh, that I'm not going to, uh, I'll be willing to follow doctrinal error. Something miraculous takes place. Just around the time uh, before, uh, in the late 1800s, a fellow comes on the scene by the name of Johann Gutenberg. What an amazing man! Invented the printing press. You say, what's so great about that? The reason that he printed, he invented the printing press, is he wanted every man, no matter who he was, to have a copy of the scriptures in his hand to read for himself. Late 1500s, and then early 1600s, you have 1611, 1607, you have King James beginning to work on the translation work of what we hold today in our hands and consider to be and know to be the preserved, inspired, without error Word of God for English-speaking people. 1517 to about 1615, we find the church at Sardis, those that were almost dead. I mean, it was almost wiped out, but there was a small remnant. 
And God used that small remnant of few individuals, people like Johann Gutenberg, and even though Martin Luther was in error in other doctrines of his day, began to get the ball rolling in the Reformation period to cause common men to begin rising up and saying, we need to read Scripture. And while I don't think that Martin Luther was doctrinally correct by any means, he certainly was instrumental in helping to bring about some change that caused men to be able to have God's Word in their hands. In this short period of time from about the middle of the 1500s to about the middle of the 1600s, 1650, we find the remnant that had almost been dead began to thrive again. The, the fanning of the flames took place. And that ember that had almost gone out through those dark ages, God revives it again. And now with the Word of God for the common man, with a machine that was able to print it in mass and hand it out to the common man. The Bible begins to be read. And guess what takes place next? We talked about them last night. Isn't it amazing that when that Bible was translated into our language, in the common language, and we began to propagate it and get it into the hands of men, revival began. We see the first great awakening taking place and from the 1600s, middle of the 1600s until the early 1900s, we have an amazing period of time in history of man where the propagation of the gospel was done in in massive uh, uh, ways and God's hand mightily at work. We find the first great awakening happening in the early 1700s till about the middle of the 1700s and you have in the Americans... You have people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield getting up and preaching and, and men getting saved and revival literally spreading across our country. Over in England, you have people like John Wesley, who though there were some errors in doctrine that he had, would at least teach an evangelistic gospel. And people began to see the Word of God, and he began to work in England. And men like Spurgeon and some of these guys were being used. The old Moody made trips over to England. <clears throat> many, many people were saved as a result of that. The great Welsh revival that we spoke about uh, last night, uh, Evan Roberts and that group, all started as a result of these awakenings. Uh, the second great awakening happened towards the late of the seven, late 1700s and uh, was in the mainly started in the New England area. You have people like Charles Finney and Sam Jones and some of these great, great men who would preach. Uh, R.A. Torrey and... G. Campbell, G. Campbell Morgan, David Brainerd, John Leland, some of these great Baptist preachers, and great revivals beginning. Why? Because God's Word had been printed and given to the common man. Now they could read it. Now they could understand it. And we find here in the Church of Philadelphia, characterized by the evangelistic church, the church that was loving God and loving people, and doing all that they could to reach people with the gospel. And in the early, mid-1900s, we began to see a movement after great revival, great apostasy, great materialism. There was so much productivity. The industrial age had come to America. So much prosperity happened so quickly in such a young country that we became a very materialistic people. And our churches, without persecution, to purify them. Without hardships for them to take a stand for. And now with wonderful wealth and materialism became apathetic and said we are rich 
and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He said, well, Pastor, that's, that's just a coincidence that these churches line up with the way that the history of churches since Christ had fallen. And that could very well be. I'm not saying that there is anything in Scripture that says this represents this. But it is interesting that God gave us these seven churches with these seven characteristics. And just before He gave them, He said, Blessed is he that hears the words and reads the words and does the things that are therein. To learn the things that can be learned from these churches and put them into practice today. I think we're living in the time of churches that are characterized and marked by the character of the Laodicean church. There are a remnant, there will always be a remnant of true churches, but the truth is, even in our most ardent churches, even in the churches that are most prone to hold to the truth of God's Word, that are most active in pursuit of personal holiness in their life, we still live in a very materialistic country, in a very materialistic world. And the truth is, we like to live very comfortable. God tells them, you need to buy of me gold tried in the fire. White raiment, so that you can be clothed. And He said, anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you can see. I think that will be the prayer of our hearts. Lord, help me to see. Open my eyes. And uh, next week, we'll start jumping into some of the prophecies of Revelation. And that will be very exciting. Uh, I know the churches have been somewhat of a tedious study, but something I think that was needful and profitable to us. And I hope that that will be a help to you. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word that it guides and directs us. Lord, we went a little bit longer tonight than we normally do, but uh, needed to get through some of that. And we pray that you would bless uh, the teaching of your word. May it be helpful to us as we look to the future and the things that you would have for us to do today in our lives. May it be the motivating factor to keep us right to keep us pure, to keep us diligent doing your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.